Welcome to the Speaking Podcast. You can find all our episodes on speakingpodcast.com or also on BitChute and YouTube. You'll find the links in the podcast description. And if you're listening on Spotify, I'm putting up my videos now so you can actually uh, watch the video as well as listen to it on the, the audio on Spotify. I've got four other podcasts and I'm a podcasting coach because I've got four in the top half percent. And the other one got to the top one and a half percent. So I think I know what I'm doing. So you'll find everything about me on bio.link forward slash podcaster. Today, my guest, author, speaker, I believe a registered nurse, filmmaker, please welcome Candy Campbell. Hi there. Great to be with you today, Roy. So, very nice to meet you. So, I mean, I've mentioned a few things, but I suppose you might let the listeners know who's Candy. Well, that's uh, kind of a loaded question because I people ask me that. How can you be an actor and a nurse? And when did you discover acting? And I'll say that um, I was introduced to acting as a young child. And then was told that it was so um, unrealistic that I should, you know, give it up. But I, my first, my initial uh, bachelor's degree is in acting. But uh, I think my parents were right in a lot of ways because right after I got that degree, I had what sometimes we used to call a casting couch experience, uh, kind of you know, akin to the Me Too movement when somebody, you know, a director put the moves on me and um, told me that that was the way the game was played. And so I uh, basically shoved him across the room and said, not for me, didn't act for a long time. And then in the next iteration of my life, the next work, I got the call to be a nurse. And now I blend the two with art and science, as I say. Excellent, excellent. And I've got a few kind of initials after my name, PMP and DTM for the Toastmasters. But I saw you've got like the alphabet and I just, I mean, you've got DNP. I, you might tell me what to do. I know RN, that's the only one that I knew, which is registered <laughs> I know, you know, in academia, we like to sort of collect these things. So DNP is the doctorate of nursing practice, my doctorate, you know, you can do your research on various things and mine's in leadership. So that was that. And FNAP, that's a fellowship from the National Academies of Practice, which is a collaborative of, I believe, 11 different clinical uh, groups and we collectively discuss healthcare legislation and uh, advocate uh, as as a caucus. And uh, so I did my um, my master's in public policy. In uh, I used to be in California, and so I spent a lot of time with the American Nurses Association doing public policy. And again, Roy, it really it dovetails into the fact that um, my first degree being in speech communications, theater, acting, uh, I've not been afraid of speaking the truth to whoever and hopefully doing it cogently and exponentially. So They've been using my talents in that way. And and those are other certifications that I've had in academia. 
those other initials. <laughs> so, I mean, obviously you've been on stage and everything, but as a young girl, how what was your transition to actually kind of become confident speaker or actress? Well, uh, you know, I'll tell you a funny story. When I was five, I was a really shy little kid. I had two older brothers who were nearly a decade older than me. I was kind of the oops kid, you know. Oh, we're pregnant again. And so as the only girl, I don't know, I, I think I remember that um, my first words were get off me, you know, because my brothers, <laughs> you know, they're wrestling. And I don't know if you come from a big family, but um, I was always so I was reticent. And one day in the summer when I was five years old, a lady who wasn't a lady at the time, she's a teenage girl, knocked on the door and told my mother she was a neighbor girl, lived two blocks away, that uh, part of her, I think she was going for a Girl Scout merit badge or some such thing, don't know. She was having a preschool uh, in the summer, and she was going to um, train uh, little girls on on how, on etiquette. That was the thing. So uh, three days a week, I think it was for a few weeks uh, from nine to noon, uh, she gathered us up and we went like ducks in a row down to her parents' garage and she had little chairs set up there. And and that was where I learned not only how to drink a cup of tea, and it was really cute because I thought the pinky was part of it. You know, she always told us to have our pinky out. And uh, another thing that she did, other than teaching us how to shake a hand firmly, looking in someone's eyes, she said uh, she she had the, the chairs there and kind of like an audience. And we took turns. We brought our dolls. She was really smart because I think we were all shy at five. We brought our dolls and she had us learn how to have our dolls tell about something, tell a story or whatever. And so, oh, and how to properly applaud when someone's done something nicely, how to, you know, put on what she called restaurant manners, all of these sorts of things. And that was when I first got the the really good feeling that comes when you've said something and people appreciate it and they applaud. So <laughs> that was my first, that was the first time. Oh, excellent. So I, I know that you've, um, you've spoken around uh, the world because we were talking just before we recorded about Ireland and I saw, you know, Canada, US obviously, and the UK. So like, what have you kind of noticed uh, the differences and how you have to adjust to kind of connect better with the different audiences? Well, I have to tell you a secret. I, I believe that Aside from our different languages, we're all God's creatures. We're all the same. And that basis of sameness is something that I bring to everything. And maybe one thing that I, I didn't share that you don't know is that after I uh, uh, gave up theater for, for a decade, um, I worked as a flight attendant with Pan Am. And during that time, I flew literally all over the world. It'd be easier to tell you the countries I haven't been in than the ones 
that I have. It's too long of a list. And during that time, I lived in six cities in five years that I flew. And um, I lived in London for two years. And so, and, and I was engaged to a Brit. So at the time, you know, when you asked me, how do I modify or, or and it, I, I don't think there is. I, I always look for the things that we have in common. And one of the things that I think everybody has in common is an appreciation most of the time for the ridiculous and that the human condition is funny. And so I like to play around with people and have fun. Excellent. So I've like just seen some of the videos and uh, Florence Nightingale that I saw, I saw you on stage with that. And basically, that, like, I didn't know much about it, but it's like 1800 or something. Was it one of the first nurses or something that that was the, the basic? <laughs> but to be honest, you know, just just looking at you on stage, you can just see you're just oozing confidence, but also connecting with the with the people. So I'd like to know your journey on that. And like when I looked at that, I was like, I could not remember the words or things like that. Because if I'm doing the speech, I know what I'm going to talk about, but I kind of go with flow. I am not good for kind of the memory kind of. Uh... <laughs> well, that's sort of a two pronged answer, I think, because in the first place, as a trained, classically trained actor, you know, cut my teeth on Shakespeare and all of that sort of thing. Um, we learn that there's a kind of a memory is a kind of a muscle. And I know that's probably the most common thing, uh, comment that I get from people is however do you remember everything? Well, number one, remember, it's not Shakespeare, although a lot of it, uh, when I wrote it, uh, and, and the book channeling Florence Nightingale has a lot of the script in it. When I wrote it in order to cut it down from the first iteration of that show, which was like two hours and 15 minutes, um, I needed to pare it down and, and I, I hearkened back to my early training. And so I wrote, uh, quite a lot of it in iambic pentameter because as you learn as an actor Shakespeare did that but he did it for a reason and and here's my explanation it was an early sort of spoken word poetry and as an actor when you have a thought and you can sort of um trigger find a trigger word if you will that goes to the next one and if they sort of rhyme even if it's not a perfect rhyme it works and it makes it a lot easier. And an interesting thing, when you hear such things, of course, Shakespeare may be a little obtuse for our modern ear, but I think in this show, I've never had anyone tell me that even though Miss Nightingale speaks in what we would call antiquated language, that they don't get the gist or they don't understand. And I think part of it is because the language itself is lyrical. Does that make sense? Yeah. Definitely, yeah. Definitely. So, like, you've done uh, TV as well, I believe, have you? And you've done commercials and voiceover. Mm -hmm. So I suppose a three-prong question on the different kind of tips for each one of them. Mm. Okay. Well, um, which one do you want to start with? I suppose we'll start off with the television, what you've kind of done, okay. and then what tips you could give people. When when you work in television, and I uh, that's the medium I've done the least in. 
they usually have teleprompters unless you're there for an interview. And again, if you're speaking about, and you're you're a DTM, so you know this, if you're if you're talking about extemporaneous speaking, the main thing is to know your main points and then relax and go with the flow and kind of have fun with it. I always say, try and uh, look where they want you to look because usually there's a little red light on the camera that they want you to follow so that it looks natural, right? So that's the thing for television. Uh, for voiceover, and that's one of my favorite mediums because I started doing voiceover in the 90s after um, I had a, a divorce and, and was not acting for a lot of time while I was married. And then I just wanted to uh, make a little bit of extra money. And um, right away in the San Francisco area, I got an agent and I didn't, I didn't want to do stage because it takes such a lot of time, you know, but when my agent sent me out for voiceovers, oh, it was great. I could go in studio, do the recording in an hour. And within a week or so, I have a nice little extra check. And the, for me, the reason I think that I got hired a lot and kept coming back, um, and not everybody has this gift, but you might recognize this. I can speak other languages. And when I was flying for Pan Am, uh, I was disappointed that, you know, life didn't work out the way I had it, that I couldn't just be a repertory actor at the time. So I, I set myself a goal. I said, okay, I'm going to fly all over the world. And I already know French and German because I had a French speaking grandma and a German speaking grandma and took those courses, you know, languages do sort of come easy for me. So I'm going to study dialect. And that led to a lot of voiceovers where I could do fun characters. And at the time, there were a lot of radio commercials to be had. So the thing about voiceover and you know this because you're a podcast host is that that I had to learn right away is that you don't want to play to the balcony like you do for a stage <laughs> this is like speaking into a baby's ear you have to be careful because the very first voiceover that I ever did I remember I came in and I had the lines <clears throat> and I stood back at the mic and belted it out and the audio engineer just about jumped out of his seat <laughs> what are you doing so you have to be careful so there's different techniques for each one of course excellent and with the teleprompter because i've actually never used that is there cases where i mean we i see with biden he just kind of he says things he shouldn't say but like i'm assuming somebody else is doing the scrolling for it and what happens when like not everybody is at, at the races sometimes they might like is there kind of techniques to kind of help you or if there's a kind of if it breaks down are you actually learning what you're supposed to be doing anyway so you can kind of you know kind of wing it basically there are there are varying situations and again i don't know them all i just know that when i saw news folks using a teleprompter 
because they needed to get it right. And they always had a technician who they had they had worked with before. So they, but also that particular job as the teleprompter tech, that that person is in charge of, you don't look at that person, but that person is in charge of understanding your cadence and keeping it to a good flow. Because obviously if they do, if they go too fast or too slow, it's bad. So th that's a nuance in itself right there. And obviously could could not go well if, if they don't do it right. Excellent. So I know you've uh, done some comedy and you set up a company doing improvisation. So you might kind of touch on that because I find that fascinating. And it's a skill set in itself because not everybody, you know, a lot of people can be very competent speakers, but doing comedy is a, a different skill set. It is indeed. And I, I'll tell you, there's a story, of course, behind everything I've done. Um, in 1992, when I was divorced and and moved, and it was a very difficult time. I know some people say, oh, I had a great divorce, but you know, uh, mine was not. And it was very difficult. Um, after a while, I just thought, you know what? I want to laugh again. So aside from getting going out and getting an agent right away, which happily happened, not everybody is successful getting an agent right away, but I did. Uh, but, you know, I had a lot of experience. Um, the, after, after I started doing those voiceovers and, and things, it was fun. And like I said, the underpinning impetus for me was I just, as a comic actor, that's what I usually was cast as, because uh, I loved to, to laugh. I hadn't laughed a lot for months. And so when I saw an advertisement for a clean comedy company, I thought, well, okay, good. I'll try that. So I started in this class and learned setup punch. And that was all well and good. It was all based on real, you know, stories. But I noticed that, and there was only maybe eight people in the class. I noticed that some of the other people were a lot looser on stage and i thought well okay they're not actors and i've been trained to be in the guise of somebody else i didn't have to put myself out there and stand up you know you have to be yourself well unless you're doing a character and i did that sometimes too but um so the secret was that they were all taking improv and you might think, well, you were an actor. You probably already knew that. But when I was uh, in training in my undergraduate years, improv books were only just coming out. And it wasn't, I mean, we did sort of improvisation, but we didn't study what you might call the principles, of which now I've I've outlined 12 of them. Um, so I was learning improv in, in an entirely new way, understanding some of the principles. And the improv that we were learning was for performance. So it was a different animal, if you will, altogether than what I teach now. But that improv really helped me 
uh, relax and be more fluid and, and go with the flow, if you will, on stage and started pretty much everything else. Excellent. And you've written books on improv, have you? Right, right. So uh, if I will, I want to digress and tell you how that happened. Um, so what happened was that after almost a year, I suppose, three of my stand-up buddies and myself decided that we would create our own improv company, as you mentioned, in the San Francisco area in the East Bay. So we did. And we were together about three years before, you know, it was kind of an amorphous group. People move and, you know, the group kind of disbands. But around the second year, and this happened every performance pretty much, people would come down front just to say hi and how they enjoyed it and all. People always asked, "You did you really make it up on the spot? Didn't you, like, plan this before? And we'd say... <laughs> No, you heard the suggestion, you know, and then they'd say something like, well, you could have had somebody planted there, you know, you could have. And I'm like, no, no, you know, it's improv. Uh, one night in 1995, I remember this, a fellow listened to that sort of chatter. And then afterwards he came forward and he said, okay, I get it. You, you didn't plan it, but let me tell you what I saw. I saw you guys take a problem and transform it into something really different, a, a solution, if you will. And what I want to know is, would you be willing to come teach my engineers how to play nice and park their egos? <laughs> and so, um, I don't know, I guess maybe because I was the only one with an education background, I had curriculum development in my minor, my education minor. I, I, for whatever reason, I was the only one who wound up doing it. So that was uh, a company in Silicon Valley, a startup at the time, which has now been subsumed by another very large company, uh, which you would know. And that that was a really interesting workshop. It was the first time that I that I taught improv and I knew that it was going to be different than performance improv because we weren't just going for the joke. Uh, we weren't just going for the funny. We were going to build relationships. And so what I decided to do was do a lot of debriefing after the exercises. And I knew that before we even started, these were not people who wanted to be there. <laughs> if you can imagine, I don't know, Roy, if you've ever walked into a room to speak and everybody's sitting there like this <laughs> with their arms across their chest because they were made to be there. I was the only woman in the room and there were less than a dozen, but they were all leaders, very smart people. But Evidently, there was a lot of animosity one to another. <laughs> and um, so I had to sort of warm up the room, if you will, explain a little bit about the process, about the method, and get their agreement. It, would they be willing? First of all, I gave them a promise. I said, you know, if you're willing to risk being vulnerable, and maybe even to look a little silly in front of your peers, 
um, I promise that you you will have a skill that will improve your performance at work and even in your personal life. And so they were willing to risk that. And at the end of the day, two things happened. First of all, I got a lot of testimonials about how great it was and all of that. And uh, the person who hired me said, I, I can't believe it. You know, it's a miracle. These people who wouldn't, wouldn't help each other if they were drowning. You know, they're like going out for a beer now or something. I can't believe it. So I worked for them more than once. Um, but the 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 biggest takeaway for me, Roy, was that, um, and you've probably heard this, uh, tragedy is easy, comedy is hard. Uh, all the work and the time that I spent doing stand-up, trying to make people laugh, I had to honestly admit that it was more more fun for me to help people develop skills and see and enjoy the the laughter that came that rose up out just you know innately which i knew would happen it always happens well it did with actors because i think they were more willing to be silly and relaxed but um this was so rewarding that it was more rewarding to help people learn to laugh than it was for me to stand up in front of people and try and make them laugh. So uh, I continued to do stand up for a total of nine years and I don't really perform it anymore, but I, I use, you know, I use it. Okay. And you've, um, I believe you've written some children's books as well. Yes. Right. Well, again, so many stories. Oh, gosh. Um, I didn't even finish the first one. All right. Well, well, the first book I wrote was called, uh, is called My Mom is a Nurse. And I only wrote that book, not because I wanted to be an author ever. I didn't ever wake up thinking that. It's just that I thought I had seen it. And there was a gal that I was working with. It seemed like, you know, the younger gals were getting pregnant. My kids were in high school and there's, you know, the younger ones that I was working as a neonatal intensive care nurse and uh, she wanted children's books for her baby shower. And I was going to get her that book. My mom is a nurse. I knew I had seen it. I could not find it. It didn't exist. And I'm like, but it has, I, I just knew it was in it. And so I don't know if you ever have this, Roy, when you lie down, put your head on the pillow at night, and you maybe run through the day's events. And maybe there's something that you didn't get an answer to, you know? I laid down my head on the pillow and went, well, Lord, if this book exists, help me find it. And almost right away, it was like, it's yours. What? I must be, I'm tired. Anyway, when I finally realized that this was something that I, I needed to do, it wasn't the first creative work that I had done. By this time, I'd already had uh, two solo shows. And so I thought, oh, no, I am going to make a book now. <laughs> so that was the first one. And um, then in the interim from that, that led 
to the film that is, uh, let's see, it's back there. If you can see, there's a little, an award that came from this film that I, I did. And, um, and because the film, it's called Micro Premature Babies, How Low Can You Go? A little plug for that. It's it's on Amazon Prime, if anybody has, it's, not, it's for free now. Um, but in, it was released in 2003, and it was an answer to a big question that caused me to go back to film school. And the, and the question was, how does a, an extremely low birth weight baby uh, that survives, you know, these are teeny tiny babies that survives, how does this whole thing affect the family unit? And I knew that there were a lot of answers that needed to be had. So I made that film, it won this wonderful International Medical Media Award. And then I decided, well, I must have, you know, I know I, I was working as a NICU nurse. I have a heart for these parents. Um, I started a, uh, a podcast called The Preemie Post, and I was doing a recording with one of the fam the moms of a family that's that's in the film. And there was a knock at the door as she was getting ready to leave. And it was um, a courier from or whatever it was a delivery of the proof text of the first book my mom is a nurse and so uh she loved it i showed it to her she loved it and um her sister's a nurse or something so she said oh you know i gotta have a copy and then she said and by the way since you're doing this i've got your second book and i'm like i didn't know i was gonna write a second book she said it's got to be called Good Things Come in Small Packages. I was a preemie. And so it is. And I said, okay, what's it about? And then she told me the story about how when her little twins, which were born at about 24 weeks gestation, around six months, right? When they came home and when they finally got to like kindergarten, the teacher did what teachers do very often in kindergarten on valentine's day they had a little project and they sent a note home saying we want the first pictures of your babies we're gonna put them on the board and try and do this little game where we guess who was who right and so they sent pictures of the girls when they were i don't know almost two and then the teacher called them and said, you know, no, that's not really what we want. And she explained, well, look, we haven't looked at those pictures for an awful long time. They were up in a closet somewhere. And the girls knew that they were preemie, but they didn't really get it. You know, they didn't really know. So that prompted them to take down the box of photos and go through with the girls. And she said, something happened. We had no idea what happened they freaked out they freaked out they started running around the room saying you left us alone in a hospital with strangers and they poked needles in us you're so mean anyway so um the book is about uh, the story that and i realized okay this is what i'll do i made the story of uh, a little boy who just 
discovers his unusual beginnings and uh, the love for his parents. So, so that's, and then there was my grandma as a nurse. And anyway, all that happened because of the film. And then to tie this into improv, because I never answered the <laughs> that question about the book. Roy, I'm going all over the place. I feel terrible. No, it was very enjoyable. Well, what happened was that along the way, after those things happened, um, you know, life sometimes gets in the way of what you suppose is going to happen, right? Like you're there in Poland. You didn't think that that was going to happen necessarily. I I had five foot surgeries. And that laid me up for about 13, 14 months. And when it was over, the doctor said, you need to have a job where you're not on your feet for a while. I, I don't know if you're ever really going to heal. I mean, happily, I really have. But it took a while. So I got a desk job. I got a job with the Department of Health in California, Children's Health. And um, so after a couple of years, the boss said to me, guess what? They've just reinvented your, your position and I have to fire you because you don't have a master's degree. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, <laughs> okay. So I... Um, by that time, I was well enough to have a part-time job back in the NICU, started going to grad school, did, as I mentioned, the first master's in public policy. And as soon as I did that, I got hired to start teaching part-time. And then um, I sort of got uh, headhunted by a different university, which is where I retired from. And uh, <clears throat> the dean said, well, we'd really love for you to come teach here. But here's the thing. At this university, we won't hire anybody who doesn't have a doctorate. And I'm like, okay, well, thanks anyway. And she said, we can fix that. <laughs> and uh, we'll pay you first rung as though you already have it. How's that? I'm like, okay. And then she said, but before we sign, there's something that we have to have a conversation. I'm like, what? She said, well, you know, it's about research. So you can, if you don't know what you want to do, um, she said, do you think you want to do more research on like micro premature babies like you did this film? <clears throat> and I said, no, you know, the, the aim was to uh, have people understand that there's a lot of what we now call PTSD for families that go through this acute problem and that it's, you know, goes on, et cetera. And now there's more research, whereas there wasn't ending when I started. Um, and I'm sort of done with that one. She said, well, okay, it's, it's fine. I can plug you into like 16 different research projects. No worry. Or you can cut your own path. It'll be harder, but you can. And I, that's when the, the light bulb went on because Roy, dovetailing back to this conversation about improv, I had been here and there, side gig, teaching improv, but I couldn't get a toe in the door at the hospital because you know why? There was no 
research done in healthcare. And I'm like, oh. So she said, all right, if you want to do that, I know just what we'll do. So she hooked me up with some people over at Stanford. And I did an interprofessional workshop with managers and well, all sorts of clinicians, let's just say it like that, and did some longitudinal follow-up studies. And I got the research that they needed so that now I could teach in healthcare organizations that. And after a few years, I realized, you know what? I had to focus that study on improv from theater arts. But when I teach it, I really bring in all of the arts. And so I'm going to write a series of books. The first one is Improv to Improve Healthcare. The second one, which will come out soon in March or April, I'm not sure, is called Improv to Improve Your Leadership Team. And there are two others because... I think it's it's useful. People need them. Excellent, excellent. And like, would you bring people up on stage as well to kind of join? Because I've seen some of the things and it's amazing, actually. Some people can adapt without even realizing that they have that kind of skill set and other people kind of crumble. But uh, I, I love watching uh, improv. Well, if I might comment on that supposition... I would say it has a lot to do with the setup. So if, and I have seen improv gone wrong by people who don't really know it very well. They maybe take one course and they think, oh, this is great. I know I have a favorite exercise. Let's do this one. And this happened when I was on a board of directors and and uh, for this one organization and uh, the president uh, that I didn't know very well had a friend who exactly this thing happened. And, and uh, she came in and she said, okay, we're going to do improv to get to know each other because nobody really knew each other on this board. And uh, unfortunately, she picked a sort of a higher stake improv exercise. And it was unfortunate. It backfired. It embarrassed people who, as you rightly pointed out, maybe weren't as quick on their feet. And, and it was a disaster. And people going off saying, ah, you know, this this is hard and it's awful. And, you know, it, it was bad. So, uh, you know what? It's kind of like, Roy, did you ever learn to play piano or any musical instrument? I tried, I tried to do guitar and the guy used to look out the window waiting for the hour to end. I was so bad. <laughs> Directly to my point. It's really about if you're a nascent beginner in anything, especially something artistic, that that you you have to concentrate, you have to focus, you have to sort of hone certain skills, but you really need a supportive, encouraging safe environment with somebody who knows what they're doing who knows how to give you baby steps at first and that's the key the key is just like if you're gardening you know you don't just go out and dig a hole well you'll have less success if you go out and dig a hole in rock or throw a seed on the rock like the old parable you know you want to 
get the ground right, you know, get every, you know, make everything safe for this little seed to sprout and then water it with encouragement and just the right nutrients and it will grow. It's the same with teaching anything, music, and especially something where you're so vulnerable as improv. I'm sorry, I didn't have a very good guitar teacher. Well, I actually, and I think it happens with a lot of different things. I know, didn't know then, but he was teaching me songs that I had no interest in. So, whereas if he said to me, who's your favorite artist? For me, say, In Excess was the one. And if he just gave me a few little, I would have practiced constantly because I loved them. And, you know, it's just, but yeah, you have to connect with the people. and That is so true. That so is so true. I, I saw one of the things that um, it's Toastmasters. So I saw Toast Roast and something else. So you've you've done Toastmasters. Oh, and circumcision. Yeah, I was like, <laughs> I had the I was trying to, I was like, there's no way I saw that. I was like, is that a typo error? But I said, no, there's no way. You, you can make a typo error, but you couldn't do a typo on circumcision. <laughs> That was a fun friend of mine that had a bris and, uh, you know, asked me to say a few words. So we were just being silly. <laughs> yes. Yes. I have spoken for toasts, roasts and circumcisions. <laughs> so you weren't a member of Toastmasters where you are, Jesus Christ. You know, I, I thank you that, you know, people ask me that a lot. Um, not really. Uh, but here's what happened. You know, in college, uh, in order, and I, I was very fortunate for my my initial undergraduate degree. I, um, I didn't have to pay for it. I was on scholarship and grants, and one of the part, one of the parcels of that, or parts of the parcel, was work study, right? And so I did various things. I was the manager of the radio station and um let's see and then you know uh at one point i was the administrator or secretary for the department head and at another point well sort of throughout because it was a part-time thing i got called upon whenever a local high school and i was in tacoma washington university of puget sound go loggers uh whenever they needed um judges for their local speech meets usually it was regional or state then um the uh the director would say i got another one for you you know you'll get paid to go i got an hourly wage to go and do that and so later on when i started doing public speaking and i joined the national speakers association there's always a lot of people who come in from toastmasters to to nsa and that was my first connection uh when a friend said Oh, you've been, you know, you're familiar with Toastmasters because I had gone to a couple of meetings with him just, you know, to to seek it out, see what it's about. And I said, yeah, yeah, I understand that. And he said, well, we need judges. And since I have a degree in that. So, um, yeah, I started and and in the San Francisco area, uh, especially in the East Bay, uh, I was a not infrequent judge of Toastmasters. It's a wonderful organization. 
Excellent, excellent. Yeah, no, I I love it. I, I mean, it's helped me an awful lot. Like, I mean, I'm no longer remember, but uh, yeah, I, I think I was about five years uh, in it, and you know, it encouraged me to actually do an open mic and you know do a lot of competitions, and I've done judging as well. And I think just taking all the different roles, it just kind of reverses it, and then I think it improves you as a speaker because then you can kind of say, okay, he's looking for this. So that's how I actually, because I got into a final of five countries and how I did it is I looked at the judging criteria and I made sure I was covering everything. And I, would, I wouldn't have known that unless I was a judge, to be honest with you. I wouldn't have kind of thought of it from that kind of perspective. Well, wait a minute. Are you saying that the entrants aren't giving given the judging criteria? That sounds weird. Uh, you can actually see it, but I mean... I thought so. Yeah, but you, you know, you kind of to make sure you're covering everything. It's like sometimes uh, you can read something, but it's not till you're okay. actually sitting there and you're watching and you're making sure for the whole lot and putting two and two together and then just reversing it. It's kind of, so I found it, uh, it really helped me. Indeed. So I wish you super success with your uh, new book, which will be out in uh, probably April, I believe. So you might let people know how they can get in contact with you and the name of the book again. so that they, And I'll make sure I'll have you know the links for your other books as well. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Um, if, if anybody would like an autographed copy, you can go to my website and uh, shoot me a sign up. Just shoot me an email. I'll put you on the list. Uh, as the presale, and uh, I, I don't even ask for money up front. We'll work on that, you know, when the book comes out. So my websites will have two of them, but the first one, this one, is candycampbell.com, and if it's slash new book, <laughs> pretty simple on that. And again, Campbell is C-A-M-P-B-E-L-L, -L, and candy is just like bonbon. C-A-N-D-Y. Um, can I plug the show in March? Of course. Well, as I told Roy, the other great news that I had this week was, or last week now, uh, uh, was that my third solo show, which is called An Evening with Florence Nightingale, The Reluctant Celebrity, is coming to Off-Broadway between March 6th and 19th. And it's a part of the uh, one of the most prestigious solo theater festivals. It's not the Fringe. This is a, a festival you have to be juried into it. And a lot of uh, very big names in theater have got their start there. And uh, it's going to be at Theater Row which is 42nd and 8th Street, right off Times Square. And uh, I don't have the specific times or the specific dates because it won't be every single night until the end of this week. So if they go to that website, which is my Florence Nightingale website, which is for, to see like videos and such Florence Nightingale live.com and shoot me an email uh, or they can, you know, shoot me an email on the other one. Just let me know that you're interested and I will get back to you with uh, the link to get tickets. And let me just say one other thing. The nice thing about this particular 
festival is that the tickets are not, even though it's right off Broadway, they're not Broadway priced. It's very reasonable. I mean, incredibly reasonable. <laughs> Excellent. So what you do is uh, when you actually get the, the links, you can send me that and I can update the show notes so that people will be able to actually go in and they'll see it on that as well, both on the audio and the video. Thank you. I will do that. So I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. I'll make sure I'll put not just that link, of course, but all the other links of the two websites that you mentioned, both on the YouTube and uh, BitChute and the Spotify with the video. Great. Thanks so much. It's been okay. a pleasure meeting you and speaking with you, Roy. You too. Thank you very Next much. Next time in Poland. Yep, definitely. <laughs> so that's all for the Speaking Podcast. You'll find all our episodes on speakingpodcast.com. As mentioned on YouTube, you'll find the links in the podcast description. And you'll find my other four podcasts, along with my coaching on bio.link forward slash podcaster. Sure to give us a thumbs up, five star rating. I share with your friends, especially this episode. Nice and friendly and good stories. Until next week, take care.